0: Good evening, those of you in the sanctuary and joining us online. We are delighted to have you worship with us. And we are continuing in our series in Joshua in our evening services. Now, it's important as we come to Joshua chapter four, our text for tonight, that we understand that this is an episode in history. We are working our way through a historical book. And so to avoid any confusion in the watching world, we don't really want to use the word "story," because in many ways, to the watching world, a story means something made up, something that is fanciful. But the Bible, in the historical context, this is fact. There is a place, there is a time, and there's something that really happened. So let's not use the word "story," but talk about an account of God working in history, in time and space with real people. So in the previous chapter, we have the Lord bringing the people up to the entrance of the promised land. If we could show that map. So what we have here before us is Israel is moving from the plains of Moab. They have to cross this river, uh, the Jordan. And they're going to move up to Jericho. But there is this obstacle. And as we saw last time, God is going to provide a way for his people to cross this river. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the sermon, but this is a real place, a real time, and a real challenge. Let's go to the next slide. What you see here is an aerial picture looking from the west, and you see the Dead Sea on the right. You see the Jordan River, but you notice the plains that are there. It's a very flat area, and this will play into God's divine plan and purpose for his people to cross the Jordan at this point. And so we'll get into that even more, but notice the river there, the plains, and what we will see is how God pulls all these things together for not only the good of his people, but for his greater purpose and plan. So I invite you to take your device or the Pew Bible in front of you. If you If you're using the Pew Bible, page 335... And I'll be reading the whole chapter of Joshua chapter 4. I'll give you a little comment as we move through, just so that we understand in this long passage what we're hearing. So hear now the word of God. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, "'Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan.' from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenants of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So now we're going to, next few verses are going to be actually telling us the actions. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood and they are there to this day. Now the priests who carried the ark remained standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. The people hurried over, and as soon as all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Crossed over armed in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. That day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life just as they had revered Moses. Now the Lord's going to speak to Joshua again. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the tenth day of the first month, The people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, so now Joshua is speaking to the whole of the congregation, or the assembly, in the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, You are not absent from time and space and history. In fact, it is your story. And as we look to this account of Joshua, help us to understand what it means. That as we read this account of something that really happened, it also points us to theological truths. We pray your spirit would help the ones who hear and the one who speaks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen chop-o-matic, veg-o-matic, pocket fisherman. For some of you of a certain age, it brings back memories of infomercials, the early day of infomercials. There was a man named Ron Popeil, and he had these devices that he invented and put on, on sale at the infomercials. And one of his catchphrases was, for those of you of a certain age, you can jump in, but wait, there's more. And so as he talked about these features, he'd take out the Vegematic or the whatever uh, pocket fisherman and you know, something like that, and he'd say, well, here's what you get, but wait, there's more. And he'd bring another set of blades or some other feature would be highlighted. And what he was doing was he was introducing something, but then adding and saying, there's a deeper value that you're going to get if you buy this product. And in the same way, when we read biblical history, there are deeper theological truths contained in their accounts. There are deeper theological truths. You see, as New Testament believers, we read the Old Testament through the cross. We read the Old Testament in light of the great sweep of redemptive history and not just in isolation. That our, uh, the cross is our interpretive lens. And so what we want to do tonight is to see that the life of the believer is rooted in two things. First of all, the character of God, the character of God, and secondly, the mission of God. The life of the believer is rooted in two things: the character of God and the mission of God. And as we walk through this outline, as we walk through the text, you'll see an outline before you. We'll first of all look at the miracle, we'll look at the memorial, and then we'll look at the mandates that flow from that. So first of all, let's look at the miracle. As last week we saw in Joshua chapter 3, God created a miracle for them to go through, right? He had the priests go, and when their feet touched, the, the waters rolled back. Here in verse 1 of chapter 4, we read, when the whole nation had finished crossing. What we have here is the preservation of the people of God, the whole nation. Now, we need to step back and say, well, how many people was that? Some estimates are between 1 to 2 million people. Part of it you can go back to numbers and look and see the census there but a million to two people getting across safely on time and in the right place is a miracle for some of you getting young kids to church on time at the right place is a miracle right but here we have joshua taking a million to two million people across so not only do we have the individuals who are safely home or on their way home to the homeland, the promised land, but we also have the tribes. You see, in verse two, he talks about the 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe. There is a collective safety here. Not only has God brought individuals, but he has brought the whole nation. They have retained their tribal identity. And so this is a miracle just on a sheer scale that we can't even begin to comprehend. A million to two million people safely across a river that could have been over 100 feet wide on dry ground. Think about that. Think about what that means in terms of the power required to effect such a miracle. But not only that, the Jordan River was at flood stage Go back to chapter 3, and we'll also see in here in chapter 4 that the Jordan River was at the flood stage. So it is even wider than usual, and yet what they run across, the land is dry. They crossed over on dry land. The magnitude of that miracle, not just to have the waters roll back, but to have the, the ground, the land, dry for these people to go through is an amazing dimension to the miracle that we often overlook. But you notice how God provides not just a miracle, but a place for them to go to. They're going to go to the camp where they're going to stay tonight in verse 3. Verse 3, we'll find out later on, is Gilgal. And on the map we saw it is just just close to the river. And it is a strategic place because... There's provision for water for one to two million people. you imagine what the, that area of the world is like in terms of being arid and the lack of water? But to have a river that can supply water for a million to two million people, it's just oh God's amazing, complete provision for these people. And not only that, not only is Gilgal bounded on one side by the river, but there are plains... There are flat areas around where they're going to camp. And that is so that they can see the enemy. Remember, they're going into a hostile land. So God has deliberately chosen and placed his people in a place of safety and provision. This is an incredibly kind and generous and caring miracle. Gilgal will be their place a base camp for their operations for a long time to come. And God has put them in the right place at the right time. But wait, there's more. The people of God who crossed the Jordan, who were they? Well, they were the next generation. They had not heard or been, they had not been present at the parting of the Red Sea. Remember? Because of their disobedience... The nation of the people of Israel were uh, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation of unbelief and bitterness against God had died off. And so God is, if you will, giving them an echo of the miracle that their forefathers had talked to them about. It's a confirmation that God is still with them, that this is a God who took them out of Israel, and that the same God, even though leadership has changed from Moses and we'll see to Joshua, this is the same God who will bring them to the promised land. So, wait, there's more. We also have to understand that the Bible is actually very sparse In the recording of miracles if you were to take your Bible you don't see miracles all throughout rather they're clustered and when we see them or read about them it's to draw our attention and there are two clusters of miracles in the Old Testament the first is where we are now between Moses and Elijah there's a cluster of miracles that's a turning point in redemptive history He had a family who went down to Egypt, grew as a clan, and came out as a nation. And God signified his presence and his power through a cluster of miracles between Moses and now Joshua. The second cluster of miracles in the Old Testament is found with Elijah and Elisha. I invite you later on to go look that up. But Elijah and Elisha had a ministry to the northern kingdom called Israel, who was just apostate. And so they had a prophetic ministry to try and call them back and to show that they were running away from the true God. And so in the Old Testament, we have these clusters of great turns of redemptive history. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha. And this, as we read the Bibles to grab our attention. God is doing something special here. It's like this. When I, I mean, the, the miracles are totally out of our normal experience, right? It's like this. When, when I first moved to Augusta back in 2012, I was... Uh, Getting around town, and I saw this stylized G Red oval a black G. I saw this G all over the place bumper stickers flags uh, Front license plates you name it. I saw this G, right? Well, I thought huh, I thought the Green Bay Packers G was white with a green background surrounded by gold oval See I didn't grow up with college football, and I didn't grow up in the south and so this thing that was outside of my normal experience grabbed my attention. And in many ways, that's what the Bible does. It signals to us through these miracles that there is something going on that is deeply significant. Something unusual that catches our attention, and miracles do that. Well, enough about the miracles, because let's move on to the memorial. The bulk of the text is around the memorial. And the memorial is what? About the event when the Jordan stopped flowing and the people crossed on dry land. And we see in the first part, starting at chapter 2, I mean verse 2, that Moses is instructing these leaders, these designated men. And from this event, from this dry land in the riverbed, they're to draw up stones. And each man, in verse is to take a stone up on his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the Israelites. Now, isn't it interesting that there is nothing special about these stones except their location? Nothing is to be done to them. They're not to be shaped. They're not to be polished. These are just ordinary stones that you and I would find in any riverbed. And nothing extraordinary in size. These men could lift it on, on their shoulders. And so this is to be building a memorial to the event. And it's to be a training tool. It's to be a method of instruction. In fact, it's to trigger a question. Look, if you will, on, at verse 6. These stones are to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When across the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. You see, it's to trigger a question. It's a, to allow for a teaching opportunity. About what? About what God has done for his people. And the answer, if you will, is to focus on the Lord and what he has done for his chosen people. But wait, there's more. Look at verse 9. Joshua sets up twelve stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood you'll see in some translation that Joshua also set up 12 stones. It's as if we have here a second memorial in the middle of the riverbed. So we have 12 stones that are taken out. They're going to go to the camp, the base of operations. Now we have these 12 stones that Joshua sets up in the middle of the river. Why would he do that? Remember, that was this was the time of seasonal flooding so the water is very high and these stones however would be likely visible when the water returned to normal and they would stand out in the middle of the riverbed and they too would be a trigger for a question why why is that pile of stones out there in the middle It's not a shrine, it's not a monument, but a teaching device to point to the Lord's great acts on behalf of his people. You see, Joshua, under the Lord's leading, wants the people to remember this great event, not only at their base camp, but when they go out and see the river, when it drops down at its level, there will be this pile of stones that will say, that's unusual, why are they there? They shouldn't be there. Why are they there? And it gives an opportunity to talk about the Lord. Now let's go back to my experience with that stylized G. It was beyond my understanding why the people of Augusta would be Green Bay Packers fans, but with a different set of colors. So finally, I had to ask someone. See, what was unusual triggered an opportunity to ask a question. Now... The people I asked were very, very kind <laughs> and they explained to me that that is actually the logo for the University of Georgia. But to me, because it was outside of my experience, I needed someone to explain that to me. It was a teaching moment. And in a similar way, we tend to forget. We tend to forget and re- forget what God has done for us and so we need, if you will, help to remember and to trigger, to ask the question, what is the Lord done for you? You see, the beautiful thing is Christianity is not tied to a place. It is, if you will, we don't want to make an idol of a place, but we come now to the sacraments. We come now to worship, and they should all point us to what the Lord has done. So... We have the miracle. We have these memorials. Let's look finally at the two mandates that flow from this. There are two mandates that flow from this. First of all, Joshua is recognized by the people. Look at verse 14. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Now in chapter 3, moses Moses—I mean, uh, Joshua had uh, been given indications that this would be an opportunity for him to be confirmed as a leader. I mean, he had big sandals to fill after Moses, right? And so people are going, you know, who is this guy? He's been with Moses, but what gives him credibility? And it is this confirmation through the miracle that this, he is a successor to one who was greater. So the first mandate is that Joshua is recognized by the people. Secondly, he's to carry on the work that God had started through Moses. This is not a change of agenda because there's a change in leadership. It is to carry on God's work. And notice that in this chapter, there was only one verse that points to Joshua. You look at all the 24 verses there, and you get one verse about Joshua. Joshua. God is the hero, not Joshua. Joshua is important. God will use him. He is listening to God. But in the great scheme of even in this chapter, and certainly the great scheme, the theological theological truth, is that God is the hero, not man, not a person. Well, that's the first mandate. Joshua is recognized by the people. He's there to follow him. He's to follow God. Secondly, the second mandate can be found in verse 24. Let me read that for you. He did this, meaning the miracle, so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord. This miracle is a testimony to the power of god to the watching world to the heathen world to the unbelieving world but it also serves a dual purpose it is to generate reverence and fear and awe of the lord your god now they didn't have vending machines at that time but you know would be you don't want to think of god as you know on demand Let, let's do a miracle i need him need help here no 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 This is a God of power, a God who is to be feared, a God who is to be reverenced. And so the mandate here is to follow the leader who follows God and secondly, to bear witness to the world and to be God's people out of reverence. So those are the two mandates here in Joshua 4. But wait, there's more. Remember we said that there are clusters of miracle in the Bible. We have two clusters in the Old Testament, Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha. You know where the other cluster of miracles is? In the New Testament, Jesus and the church. Jesus and the church. And the purpose of the miracles there is to show that God is powerful and to be a witness to the watching world and to create a reverence and a fear of God for his people. And the mission of Jesus continues on through the church. That's the mandate. And we need to understand that we are all involved in God's mission. Whether we're a parent or a worker or a single person or a teacher, we are all on a mission to witness to the watching world. We are all to be God's people to reverence and fear Him. And what this does is it's so freeing. It saves us from disappointment when we don't see fruit. Some of you are laboring long and perhaps even with youth or with people in your family and you're saying, God, where is the fruit? Where is the fruit in terms of uh, changed lives and changed hearts? And you can be very discouraged. But... This encourages us because we are doing God's work and God will bring fruit to never give up in the labor of the Lord because your labor is not in vain. This will also save us from pride. When we understand that we are on the same mission to bear witness to the watching world, that we are to carry out uh, witness to those who are um, not, not of the family of and it helps us to understand that we are to fear God that we're only doing what the King Jesus has asked us to do it saves us from pride I tell you this this pride is insidious when you're in vocational ministry I'll just share this with you back in uh, 2006 we had been working for about 10 years in the church plant in Honolulu. And I had uh, found a way to take some extended vacation, so I was uh, visiting relatives. And all of a sudden, my sister-in-law gets a phone call. And she's looking for me in the house, and she says, you got to take this call. Your church is on fire. And I'm sitting there, no, no, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's weird. I'm just a... I'm just the worm, you know. And she goes, no, your church is on fire. I said, oh, you know, the spirit of God's really working. She goes, no, it's really on fire. So she gave the phone to me, and the church was actually on fire. There were nine engines that were called to that church meeting place. But do you see how insidious the nature of spiritual pride and our looking at accomplishments as validation And so, when we understand, though, that we are just part of God's mission, that He has called us to be His people, He has called us to be part of a greater story, it gives us humility, it gives us freedom, it gives us courage. You see, God cares more about the church and His mission through the church. We want to bear witness to the power of the Lord and to reverence and fear him. Well, how do we think about this passage? There is so much here, but let me just point out two things. First of all, we have the nature of God's power and the nature of God's love combined. Clearly, we see this, that the message in verse 24 is that the Lord is powerful. He will work things because He has power. He is not bound by time. He is not bound by space. He is not bound by anything that limits us. But this power is also coupled with love, a faithful love. Eleven times in this passage, if you just take your eyes and scan through the page or on your device, you'll see the Lord with small capital O-R-D. That's the covenant name of God to his people. It is his faithful love to his people. And it is so comforting and so reassuring that we have both power of God and the love of God together. Because if you think about it, power without love is something to be afraid of. Love without power is only a sentiment. But power and love works wonders. Secondly, we need to understand how we relate to God through this passage. We have the mandate is much greater than any one person. And we see repeatedly through this that the Lord said, Joshua listened and the people obeyed. The Lord said, Joshua listened and the people obeyed. We don't have a Joshua. We have the word. Do we listen to the word of God and listen to it with the intent of being open and asking God to help us not only to understand, but to obey? That's our mandate. And from that will flow witness to the watching world, will flow a reverence and fear of God. Well, how do we apply? Well, first of all, let me speak to Uh, Followers of Jesus here, the promises, the power of God, and the purpose of God should shape our lives, our affections, our actions, the power, the promises, and the purpose of God. What what shapes your life? What, what, What shapes your life? Is it a fear of God? Is it I I, I don't trust him that he will do what he says, that you, you, you perhaps underestimate his ability to keep his promises. Or the purpose of God. You know, it's very easy to come to church on a Sunday and to live very differently throughout the week. But does the purpose of God, to be a witness to the watching world, affect the way that you conduct your lives throughout the week? Secondly, as we go into Holy Week, It's a beautiful time to remember, to recall what God has done. That his power and his love meet in a dramatic way at the cross and the empty tomb. The power to defeat death, the love to offer his son up for you and I as sinners. What an amazing reflection. So we as followers of Jesus need to shape our lives by the promises and power of God and as we go into Holy Week to understand the power and love is demonstrated most obviously at the cross and the empty tomb. Let me speak to those of you who are perhaps disinterested in things of the faith or um, antagonistic. Let me tell you that God in his grace is not part of the cancel culture. He wants you to come. In fact, in Isaiah it says come and let us reason together. He wants you to think about your relationship to him. He wants not just to talk about your actions, but your relationship to him. Come, let us reason together. That's grace. That's love. That's an invitation. So find someone who is a follower of Jesus and ask them to to help explain what all this means, especially as we go into Holy Week. So let's conclude with this. You see, in those infomercials when they said, but wait, there's more, it's actually a device that confuses you because you're sitting there, you know, am I getting a good deal? Should I wait to get a better deal? But in the case of the Bible, when there's more, it informs us theologically, and these theological truths shape our lives and our hearts to more fully listen, trust in, and live for the God, the only God of power and love. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this reminder that as we look at this historical narrative, this episode, That you have intervened in time and history to bring a people to yourself. And in no small way, in in a greater way, in the greatest way, we see at the cross and the empty tomb. Help us to be shaping our lives on your promises, your power, and your purpose for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.